You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. The Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network is brought to you by Moultrie Mobile. Transform the way you hunt with the all-new base cellular trail camera connected by the Moultrie Mobile app. Moultrie Mobile's industry best app gives you complete control over your camera settings, up to the minute updates from the field, and other interactive scouting tools on your smartphone or computer. Features like weather forecast, advanced species recognition, interactive maps, and a whole lot more. For more information and to make your purchase, visit www.moultriemobile.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first of its kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Welcome to the Huntivore Podcast, powered by Sportsman's Nation, where we celebrate the hunting and fishing lifestyle through the utilization and consumption of our wild game. No egos. Fork in hand, beer in the other. No status. A piece of red meat on a hot grill and turn it into a burnt offering. Just catch it, cut it, cook it. This is episode 94, Anatomy Eats with Dr. Jonathan Reisman. On this episode of Huntivore, Nick contacted Dr. Jonathan Reisman an ER doctor, physician's writer, and the author of the recent book, The Unseen Body. John shares his unique perspective on the connection between food and anatomy that began on his first day of medical school in a cadaver lab. Together, Nick and John talk about the inspection of animals in a kosher slaughterhouse, why are lungs illegal to sell and serve in the United States, John's Anatomy Eats Dinners, where he makes connections from what's on the plate to the living organ inside ourselves, and how Nick and John share a questionable practice at acquiring protein. To unpack all of this, stay tuned to the next episode of Huntivore. Well, hey folks, beautiful afternoon here in Michigan. Uh, We just got done with a couple really warm spring days and now we're going to pay for it we've got a slow moving system coming in it's just providing rain and temps in the 40s with a bunch of wind so we're going to pay for those nice days that we've been having but it's spring we're starting to get outside i the uh, chase for turkeys is going to be happening very soon i'm sure the first season guys have already patterned their shotguns and uh got the mechanicals ready to go on their bows, or at least the wide cutters. So exciting job for them. Today, we're kind of taking an offshoot where we're going to step away from maybe the how-tos of being a field to more of the really deep thoughts. I am joined by Jonathan Reisman. Reisman. Did I say that right, Jonathan? Yep, Reisman. Excellent. I'm joined by Dr. Jonathan Reisman. 
he is an ER doctor, a physician writer, and he has gone foodie and incorporated food and this whole I, whole talk about anatomy in his recent book, uh, The Unseen Body. Uh, Jonathan, thank you so much for spending an afternoon with me. Our, Thanks for having me. Yeah, being in Pennsylvania, what are things like over there? Is it starting to feel like spring? Oh, yeah, big time. The daffodils are up. The tulips have, have sprouted. Uh, the pear tree in my backyard is going nuts. And uh, it feels great. Good deal. Good deal. So I don't know how many people would say this, but my my experience meeting you was I happened to be driving home and turned on NPR, and I listened to a segment on Fresh Air uh, featuring you and you basically talking about the new book that you've got out. And I don't know, I was just really intrigued by the conversation you were having. I was like, man, I'm just going to email this guy that I heard on NPR. I don't know how many people actually go to the length of doing that, but hearing your story and hearing uh, the connections that you're making between anatomy, between food, between our relationship with the natural world really was intriguing. Um, so I do want to start a little bit on, on your background of how did you get into starting this venture to start connecting anatomy and food? Where did that all start? I would say it honestly started on the very first day of medical school. Um, on that first day, we had a few, you know, grand introductory lectures, uh, sort of welcoming us to this hallowed profession. And then we were led into the anatomy lab, which is the class where we would dissect a cadaver over the next three to four months. And basically they were like, here's a dead human body. Now go to it. Here's your scalpel and your tweezers. Now learn everything about it. Um, and, uh, you know, we started with the back, the cadavers were laying face down. I shared mine with three other students. Uh, the first lesson was kind of the superficial muscles of the back. So we sort of flayed open the back skin, retracted the skin flaps, and then looked at, you know, muscles like the latissimus dorsi or the lats um, and some other muscles that are um, along the spine. And that first day I was really, uh, really taken with everything we were learning, totally fascinated, decided that I would uh, donate my own body for the same dissection, literally before that first class was over. I thought it was so cool. I was like, I want a bunch of nervous first day medical students picking apart my carcass when, I, uh, <laughs> when I'm dead, just like this. Um, but in that class also, there was actually a professor who had a big influence on me who um, was, he was a comparative anatomist. So he did a lot of an animal and human anatomy sort of um, research. And he really enjoyed, he was also a hunter himself uh, and picked up roadkill plenty and butchered a lot of deer. You know, I was in suburban New Jersey where deers unfortunately litter the road sometimes. And uh, so he, he enjoyed pointing out which muscles that we were learning about corresponded to which cuts of meat. And that was really my first introduction to that perspective. You know, no one else is, you don't expect a food-based perspective on anatomy to enter an anatomy lab where there's sort of open human bodies and the smells are not pleasant to say the least, not only the body, but the uh, preservative that lets it not rot for those four months of dissection. Um, and that one thing led to another. I just found that really interesting. I ended up seeking out a slaughterhouse to sort of learn more about how, you know, uh, muscles become meat and and how um, the process happens. I was very new to this. I had never hunted before. Um, I did not grow up hunting. Nobody in my family hunted. 
it was very foreign. You know, for me, meat was these uh, disembodied slices of red glistening stuff between saran wrap and styrofoam my whole childhood. And uh, so this was sort of a, a big, a big uh, paradigm shift for me. And that sort of led me on this journey of learning all about food and how to butcher, which uh, inevitably led to uh, hunting and uh, just sort of wanting to learn everything there is about how to cook every, every part of an animal. It is, it's a powerful thing. And going through the process of, you know, at your point, you were taking apart something so familiar, like our, our own human body. And then to have your professor next to you be like, oh, yeah, this this section right here would be a beautiful correlation to a ribeye steak. And to now, you know, look at people maybe a little bit different to be like, oh, that guy's got guy's got a good ribeye steak going. Exactly. <laughs> there was there was actually another professor who was always talking about, you know, if you're at the beach in summer and you see a really muscular guy. You can like, it's an anatomy lesson. You can look at, you know, you'll see whatever it is, you know, the different muscles um, and you can correlate that to, you know, and then the other professor was talking about cuts of steak. So it's kind of like, and they're on the back of his thigh, you know, there's the top round, bottom round, eye of round, there's the flat iron steaks, there's the, uh, the filet mignon. Um, so it can, you know, on that from the first day, food and anatomy were sort of connected. And I kind of just ran with that and have learned a lot about it since. One thing, too, that um, as you're going through the anatomy is how much the connection between the inside and outside has a barrier. Um, when I was listening to you, and you can expound more upon the story, but you had a, had a moment where you were in, in a butcher shop. And in fact, it was a kosher butcher shop, as you were talking about. And several rabbis or priests were giving a lot of attention to the lungs. What did you, what did you learn about that experience? What was, what was their fascination with the lungs? What were they looking for? So when I first sought out the slaughterhouse, I was just interested in learning more about meat and, you know, um, food and how anatomy turns into food. And so I, you know, convinced the head of this local slaughterhouse in central New Jersey um, to let me come on the next slaughtering day. And after I sort of assured or convinced him I wasn't, you know, from Greenpeace and going to sabotage everything, he let <laughs> me come. That that actually has happened more than once in my travels, um, oh just because I end up getting interested. And in, when I went whale hunting um, in northern Alaska, too, that was their first question, like, do you work for Greenpeace? Um, anyway, so I when I got to the slaughterhouse, I discovered it was actually a kosher slaughterhouse. Um, and there's a lot of rules, um, you know, uh, from kosher food, most of which I was not aware of, you know, certain animals are wholesale, not kosher, you can't eat them. But then for each animal that they you can eat, um, you have to determine how sort of quote, unquote, clean that animal is. And a lot of that has to do with how healthy or sick the animal was in life, which makes per, you know perfect sense. Um, so uh, when I got there, I noticed that these rabbis, they were rabbis, there's actually a separate word called shochet of people who do this ritual um, kosher slaughter, the animal has to be killed by a, a shochet um, for it to be kosher. And then they basically examine the lungs to determine if the entire animal, all of its meat even is kosher. So I thought it was interesting, they're looking at the lungs, but you're determining the relative cleanliness of even, you know, the rump roast, which is kind of far away from the lungs. So 
the reasoning is sort of complex and has evolved over centuries and people have been arguing about it for millennia just like everything else about jewish law but um but basically they're looking for how bad uh the animal, how, if the animal suffered from pneumonia in life and how many bouts and how severe it was, and, and it, was it enough to cause scarring of the lungs? So they look on the outside of the lung, the part that would have been up against the inner wall of the chest cavity. When an animal does have a severe pneumonia, there can be scarring, uh, these white fibrous brands, uh, bands of scar tissue that hold the lung to the inner chest wall uh, called adhesions. You know, it's stuck to it in a way and doesn't slide as freely when we inhale and exhale. So they were looking for these scars, but then beyond that, they were looking for does air from inside the lung come out through these scars? So they would hold up a little puddle of water in their cupped hands against the scar, shove a hose into the animal's trachea and puff up the lungs with a burst of air and then watch if, bu if bubbles start coming through the puddle of water they're holding. So it's sort of a question is is the outside of the body kind of coming in to the body? You know, is air in our lungs making its way through this scar from pneumonia into the sort of inside of the animal? Because there's a question like, what is really inside our body, right? When we inhale air, you know, smoke, pollen, fungal spores, which we inhale every breath from the first after birth until the last before death, they go quite deep into our bodies, you know, all the way perhaps deep into our lungs, um, several feet into our body, but they're not really inside the body. They're continuous with the outside atmosphere, right? So that's not really inside the body until it diffuses across the membranes of those alveoli, those air, microscopic air sacs into the blood cell, into the bloodstream. Same goes with the gut, right? So the, the inside of the gut where food moves through us is connected to the outside uh, world. It really sort of like the outside world snakes through us, through our digestive tract, and so in a way, inside the gut is actually outside the body, you know, um, until we absorb it um, into in, across that barrier, um, you know, at the, the, that lines the alveoli of the lungs, but also the lining of the intestines. So, so that's what I realized sort of as much of determining if something's kosher or not has to do with, uh, has the outside gotten in, you know, has the outside dirtiness of the world sullied the internal sort of purity that we're born with? And is this animal still still clean to eat. So that was sort of a really interesting aspect that sort of connected food and meat and anatomy and also sort of aspects of ancient religious law that I did not know much about. Yes. I can just, going through the process of a field dress on a said piece of venison, or on a, on a venison, on a deer that, that a hunter has taken down, we've We've done a lot here for the, the clean aspect where we're running a projectile from the outside world through through its lungs, either be it an arrow or be it a, a bullet at that point. So to go through and try to like puff up the lungs isn't necessarily going to happen, let's say be right. a, a, a heart shot, but it, it would be hard right. to do that test again. But to like, as you're opening up that animal, first off, you're the first living human to touch this animal so now you've already like broken that barrier with the natural world and then to even be able to get to that that holy of holies if we were to give it some sort of uh an analogy is that now as i use my knife to go up in and open that that chest cavity and even that gut that i'm now in that sanctum that the outside world hasn't even touched yet at that point and it's just like a, a fascinating moment i think as, as any hunter would probably be sitting there oh yeah i feel dressed a a thousand deer or a hundred deer or whatever, but to like put a little bit more weight onto to what you're doing at that point, you're going to get a chance to be 
with some of these organs that nobody has had a chance to to be with. And I think that's I think that surgeons sort of have a similar experience, you know, when let's say a surgeon cuts open someone's abdomen, you know, what we might call a virgin abdomen that's never been opened before. Nobody's ever seen inside of it. No, not a single photon of light has ever hit that person's uh, innards. You know, it's sort of an uncharted territory in many ways because no two people, no two creatures, no two humans or any other species have exactly the same layout and shape and arrangement of their organs. Always a little different. Sometimes it's completely flipped. You know, some humans just have everything on the opposite side, uh, which does happen. Um, but so, you know, surgeons also, when when there's an abdomen with no surgical scars, uh, you know, if I'm examining someone's belly pain, let's say, uh, who comes to the ER, you know, when they when I see scars on the abdomen, that sort of tells you about, um, you know, let's say surgical scars. Previous surgeons have seen inside this abdomen; it's not virgin anymore, and so that can actually also be go go into figuring out what's wrong with them. Um, but the the scarless, untrammeled abdomen is sort of similar to the the hunter's experience, being the first one to open it up and see it. When you were like when you were explaining the the lungs too, I came across a blip where you were also saying that lungs is one of the few things that within the United States is illegal to sell as, as a piece of, as a piece of food. It can go to dogs. It can go to something else, but it, it can't be sold for human consumption. Um, but yet at the same time, like, I don't know, a liver can be sold. A heart can be sold. In fact, you can pick that up for pretty, pretty darn cheap. What, What's up with the lungs? Is it because, like you were mentioning earlier, that's holding the mold spores, the uh, the pollen, the the smoke, the basically the outside world that has come in? Is that's what's holding up the USDA, or is there a whole other reason why lungs has this taboo about being consumed? It's a good question. And, you know, as I talk about in my book, um, when I was a med student and sort of got interested in food and eating internal organs, I sort of went from one to the next, wanted to try all of them. And when I tried to um, find some lungs to eat, it was impossible. And I learned about this uh, law. It's not actually a law. Um, it was not a legislation debated in Congress, but rather a rule made by the USDA in 1971. So I sort of went to, went down that whole uh, sort of researching this rule which didn't make a whole lot of medical sense. And after researching it, I'm more convinced it makes no medical sense. But basically, you know, the USDA is tasked with keeping the food supply clean. I mean, that's, you know, a very worthy goal. And our food supply is, you know, cleaner than it has been for most of human history. So, um, but, you know, a lot of times they have to, uh, they have some questions about how they should approach things to keep the population safe. And in the 60s, for some reason, they needed to figure out once and for all if lungs were fit for human consumption, if it was safe and hygienic and wholesome, you know, for people to, to eat the lungs. I, and there was actually no, no record of where that question came from, who proposed it, or why the USDA set about figuring out if lungs should be sold as human food. You know, as you mentioned, they're still sold as doggy treats. I see them often. I think um, I might have seen some in Home Depot the other day, even some like lung dog <laughs> treats. But um so in 1969, they gathered a pathologist who worked for the USDA, gathered a whole bunch of cow lungs. Basically, they dissected it, you know, all the way down to the microscopic level, sort of looking for impurities. And what they found completely unsurprisingly is that the animals had inhaled, quote unquote, impurities, you know, perhaps in their last days of life, including 
uh, dust and pollution and fungal spores and uh, pollen and even some acid or some contents from the room in the stomach, you know, that had sort of come up the esophagus and gone down the windpipe, perhaps before birth, before death, perhaps after death as the animal is hanging. It's hard to know for sure. But, um, you know, they found that basically they made a practical decision that these impurities are so far down into the airways, all the way down to the alveoli. What if in a postmortem uh, examination, which must be done on all USDA certified meat, what if someone can't you know, examine the lungs, sample that closely, cut all the way down to the, to the alveolar level, look at it under a microscope. And, you know, they just do a cursory kind of examination and they might miss all these quote unquote impurities. So maybe for the sake of practicality, we should just make lungs illegal to sell or serve as human food. And that law has been on the books for now, you know, going on 50 years. Um, and, you know, I spoke to a, a legal scholar at the uh, University of Pennsylvania who basically explained it as a, an example of regulatory inertia where this law is on the books and there's just no great push to overturn it. You know, people are not clamoring for lungs, um, which is the truth. Um, you know, you can still, you know, obviously hunters can still eat lungs. You know, people who butcher their own animals can still eat lungs. It's not that it's illegal to eat them. It's just that it's illegal to serve or sell them. Um, so, uh, and that makes no medical sense, uh, you know, I'd like to explain. First of all, those things that are inhaled are, you know, if you inhale them in large quantities, sure, it's not good to, um, you know, have a lot of particulate matter in your lungs, whether fungal spores, pollen, et cetera. You know, cigarette smokers inhale an enormous amount of, of such pollutants. And I could see that on my cadaver, once we cut open his chest, you know, his lungs were the color of cigarette ash, probably from a lifetime of smoking. And to correlate that, uh, correlate with that, his the coronary arteries snaking over the surface of his heart almost felt crunchy um, in my gloved hands, which was a sign that they were hardened and calcified, a sign of atherosclerosis, which is all accelerated um, in, you know, in cigarette smokers. So it seems silly to think that eating a little bit, like let's say you eat lungs with some dust or some pollen spores or some rumen contents, it's simply not dangerous to eat that. There's no there's no evidence it's dangerous. I, I don't even know how you do a study to see that that's not dangerous, but I just don't believe that's dangerous because, you know, every piece of food we've probably ever put in our mouth had had fungal spores on it. There's fungal spores everywhere in the lower atmosphere. You just can't avoid them. They're in every breath we ever take in our life. Um, so there's a little bit of dust, a little bit of spore on everything we eat. But then something I learned in medical school gave me more, more perspective that this law was, this rule was silly because the way our lungs clean themselves and the way animal lungs clean themselves is by something called the mucus elevator, where the lungs secrete this steady, small amount of mucus that we don't usually notice that slowly creeps up all our airways, uh, gathering all dust, dragging with it whatever particulate matter we've inhaled, drags it up into the throat, and then most of the time we subconsciously swallow it. Um, so... Uh, in a smoker, you know, they produce more mucus, which is why you might get a quote unquote smoker's cough or, you know, smokers are often having extra mucus to either spit out or swallow. Um, but so we are eating that stuff anyway. And to think that an animal, you know, often who lives in the country with less pollution and less, um, you know, harmful things in their breathing, you know, someone who lives in a city or especially a cigarette smoker is swallowing tons more uh, particulate matter that might not be healthy than, than it would if you ate long. So the law makes no medical sense. I do appreciate you telling me that 
my body is super gross and efficient at cleaning itself out though. Like the whole mucus I elevator. I think it's wonderful. <laughs> it is. It is wonderful. I just, I, I had to find it. That was funny. But at the same People time, have like, issues with mucus. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> but how amazing that is that it, it can clean out those, those lungs so they can operate properly. I hear the same thing about where people talk about the liver and they say that's a, it's a filter that as we age, it, it filters out. And in their mind, this becomes a toxin bank. And that's not the case at all. That it all gets filtered back out through kidneys and expelled through urea that, you know, this is a clean organ. It's not basically a, it's not a toxic bank. And that's a beautiful piece of nutrient rich food there at that point that say, you know, if we're going to dive into this, the animal aspect of this, we see that the liver is clean and we're seeing that the, the lungs are clean, that as, as I see this progression of responsible meat eating going along, there's this idea that it's not going to become, well, I want my cut of steak only, or I only want to stick with this cut because that's, it's not sustainable at that point. We got to start looking at whole animal butchery, whole animal eating, and not just being able to just pick and choose the select cuts, but at least expound our knowledge. How can we cook this item? How can we cook liver that, I mean, liver's going to have a, a potent taste anyway, but at the same time, to be able to find a way to consume that and not let it go to waste. And I'm sure at some point, too, like, like you said, we're going to find an easier way to be able to inspect those lungs that they maybe could be on the plate. Or is it just that, that yeah, like you were saying, there's not a huge uh, line waiting up for, for lung. But I did appreciate the dish that you put together. Um, you run a whole program, or at least these dinners, called Anatomy Eats, which I, which I found really fascinating. And you've partnered with a chef, Ari Miller. And in fact, I saw on your Instagram you, you posted a dish that you were able to make out of lung. Could you explain that dish to us? Sure. Um, that dish was actually, I didn't make it, but um, I did uh, find that dish as I describe in the book's lung chapter. That was uh, photos of um, a dish that I found at a restaurant in uh, Yaffa, which is south of Tel Aviv in Israel. So I, part of my journey to try all the organs you know, ran up against this stupid rule in the US so I couldn't find lungs and I tried on the black market and was able to, you know, through hunting was able to um, procure lungs. It wasn't that I was, you know, uh, couldn't find them, but just I was curious to try to find them from a sort of legitimate legal source or just explore the market around lungs. And obviously it was not really possible to find in the US. So I had to go abroad um, to it. And it was a, a Bulgarian restaurant where I had them. But basically, you know, the lungs are generally cooked for a, a long time. That's what the uh, the waiter and owner of the restaurant had told us there. Um, there's a lot of connective tissue in the lungs, but uh, you know, like anything, when it's cooked for long enough, it becomes soft and, and delicious. So that dish was um, was kind of slowly simmered in tomato sauce, uh, tomato juice rather, and um, served with some beans and some cabbage that were in it as well. And, you know, I sort of was delighted uh, I was there with my wife and one-year-old son and uh, delighted that I finally sort of you know had found the thing I was looking for a, a legitimate dish of lungs served in a proper establishment restaurant um, and I sort of um, examined them and saw the lung architecture which I 
found very uh, interesting and exciting. And me and my son enjoyed it. My wife didn't try it. But... It was unmistakable that it looked like lung at that point. Once it you would probably like describe it, you're like, yep, that's, that's exactly what it is. Um, in my mind, again, I, I've only saw it. It has like a, 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 um, a calamari uh, texture look to it. What's the what was the mouthfeel of it? So as I get my next deer, and I'm thinking about maybe flushing these things out, giving them a good clean over, maybe a little brine overnight to pull out as much of that blood as I possibly can. What am I going to expect from a, a mouthfeel sort of aspect? Yeah, I think um, it, you know, I guess calamari. I feel like has a very different mouthfeel if it's um, overcooked and rubbery or just ju- cooked just right and sort of still soft and super easy to chew. Okay. Um, I was going more on the yeah. rubbery side, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think lungs. Yeah. It's, it, it is a little, can be a little rubbery, you know, it's not uh, it's not a big hunk of flesh. There is a lot of collagen uh, in the lungs, you know, uh, creating the structure and holding the airways and, and supporting all the cells. Um, so there is a lot of connective tissue. So, I do recommend a prolonged cooking. You know, I'm still on the journey of lear- learning how to cook every part of an animal. So I, I'm, I'm by no means an expert. I'm a lifelong student. You know, we say that a lot in medicine um, because, you know, you're always learning and seeing new things. You never know what's going to come into an emergency room next. And I'm continuously surprised. But uh, the same is true with cooking every part of an animal. I think it's just important to to know about how an, uh, an organ is structured, you know, in the same way that you can't just take what your, what you learn about cooking beef, you know, well-marbled beef or some other domesticated animal and just apply it to every animal that you might hunt. You know, it's, the meat is different. You have to sort of learn. I have had to learn a lot, um, you know, cooking venison, for instance, just is not, you know, your lessons about cooking beef are just not directly applicable always. Um, so that's been a, a, a big, important learning experience, but the same goes for organs. And sometimes Sometimes I find knowing how organs are structured, both on the sort of macroscopic level, but also on the microscopic level and how, how much collagen there is and how the you know, collagen runs, uh, what direction, et cetera, all that can go into, into cooking well. And I sort of always love how um, infer- you know, knowledge of anatomy and physiology can be translated directly into um, eating unusual body parts and, and making them delicious. When in the field, accuracy and precision count. That's why we switch our slug guns to rifle barrels, tune our arrows, and use a fish finder on the water. But why should our drive for control end there? The Tappacue line of meat probes gives an instantaneous look at the temperatures of our prized meals, both internal and the cooking chamber. Tappacue uses sturdy hardware made and assembled here in the U.S., along with their user-friendly, sophisticated software that connects to your smart device. Whether it's a traditional corded probe or the new cordless air probes that give you a wealth of freedom where wires would just get in the way. Adding a Tappacue meat probe can significantly help in getting to that medium rare on venison or waterfowl, ensuring your upland bird stays moist, or even charting your long cooks on a smoker. Visit Tappacue.com or find the link in the show notes and use the code HUNT10, all uppercase, at checkout to save 10%. Adding a probe to your kit can make you one tap away from your kit. So you're teaming up with, with Ari Miller and you've done these um, anatomy eats. And from my understanding is you, you pick a system and it's like 
cardiovascular system. This is, and each each course happens to be a piece of of that system. And this is where then you're able to shine that as diners are, are enjoying the said dish, you're able to explain so much about what this organ did in its living function at that point. It's gonna done a transformation into the the eating side of it being food, but then you also explain what uh, what it did in the living. Of all the systems in doing these dinners, which system do you find the most enjoyable? I'm sure you're gonna find each system is, you know, highly magical at that point, but which one do you find that like diners seem to really get engaged in the in the dinner experience right so our series anatomy eats uh, me and ari miller it's kind of like uh where my anatomy knowledge meets his uh you know culinary knowledge and that that overlap and um as you said we've done it several dinners here in philadelphia um they've been based on a, a body system we've done cardiovascular system digestive system musculoskeletal system um, but we have menus for for every other system as well, from urinary to nervous system um, and everything else, immune system. I would say, you know, of course, the audience for this kind of event is is self-selecting for people who are going to be very engaged and interested and not afraid of flesh and blood, um, to say the least. You know, we're not getting people who are squeamish. At, you know, they're not paying to be at this event. So that's a good start. Uh, I think the thing that people most respond to is cutting open and butchering a cow's heart, which is something that we did at the cardiovascular dinner. So we actually, so at the cardiovascular system dinner, we serve the three ingredients we chose were heart, blood, and bone marrow, you know, where all the blood cells come from, white blood cells, red blood cells, and platelets. They're all churned out by the hundreds of millions every day from our bone marrow. Um, so the heart, you know, first of all, the cow's heart is just huge which is just really arresting. And when you open it up and show people the, you can see the texture of the muscle on the insides of the ventricles. You can really see the valves and how they're structured. And there's these little tendons that sort of hold the valves so that when the, when the valves are slammed shut, um, you know, when the heart squeezes and beats, they don't sort of go the opposite way, like a door that might swing, you know, so you slam it so hard, it goes in the swings in the other way. You can't have valves doing that. Or you're going to have blood going the wrong way. So there's these little tendons there. And then just seeing sort of how the heart is connected to the large pipes, you know, the aorta um, or the large veins that are returning blood to the heart. People really respond to that. And so we we always, you know, that's kind of one of our big showstoppers is sort of um, already slicing open the heart, cutting off all the pieces as I point out structures like the valves and the muscles and how the left ventricle is larger than the right ventricle in terms of muscle thickness but also everything from the coronary arteries to what we would call the epicardial fat, which is just the fat on the outside of the heart. People really respond to that in, in a really great way. And at that dinner, we did serve actually three species of heart cooked in three different ways. There was a, a beef heart tartare, um, which was which was raw and delicious. That's um, actually a, a popular dish at Ari's restaurant, Musi, M-U-S-I, here in Philly. And we also served just some, some grilled slices of uh, pork heart, and then a chicken heart terrine. So, you know, different animals obviously are different sizes and lend themselves to to different kinds of uh, things you can do with their organs, especially the heart. Yeah, that is incredible. I've, I'm, a, I'm a taco guy myself, so my whitetails seem to always go into a taco dish, which I think I got pretty dialed in. But 
in the whole butchering of it, I, I can totally get where Ari's coming from. And it is, it's a real experience. It, it looks, I mean, it's, it's so connecting to just be like, this is with all the, uh, what am I trying to say? I'm at a loss with the connection of like our own emotional weight that we've put on this animal and knowing the weight of our own heart to be holding the heart of an animal. And in the, the, the case of a beef, man, what a huge organ. What a powerful motor that really pumps, just continues to pump blood. It, it's got to be one of those things that I think audiences really do, really do take after. Because, yeah, it is, yeah, it's huge. I think there's something special about the heart, too. You know, when you see an animal's liver, it's like, oh, interesting, that's a liver, you know, big purple glistening thing. But there's something special about the heart. Um, just like when you cut it open and can see where the blood goes and how it looks on the inside, I just find people really um, respond to and get excited about that in an interesting way. So we, we do try to highlight, highlight it in our Anatomy Eats dinners. But the, the dinners are basically structured where for each ingredient, so for the heart, I'll start by talking all about anatomy, physiology, and sort of try to direct people's attention to their own hearts and how they are um, operating in their bodies. You know, sometimes if you place your fingers on the right spot on the left side of your chest, you can feel the heart beating. You can feel your pulse, you know, in many different parts of the body, not only the wrist or the neck um, and sort of directing people to what they, they are made of and then, and then serving them that same ingredient, you know, obviously from an animal and then continuing that conversation sort of as they eat it. I think that that's sort of the essence of sort of connecting what we are made of uh, to what we eat. And so that's sort of the, that connection that I uh, realized from the first day of medical school that I've always fascinated me. I think that's what we try to bring to the, to the eating experience. Have you had a chance, Jonathan, to jump into the hunting and fishing world yourself? Or is that a world that you've been able to observe from a, a, a far place? So I do, I do hunt myself. Um, as I said earlier, I did not grow up hunting at all and didn't even know anybody who hunted. I grew up in um, the suburbs of Northern New Jersey, right outside of New York. You know, all my grandparents um, came from Europe or refugees from the World War II and nobody hunted. That was not even a thing I ever even thought about doing as a child. But um, I actually got interested first in making bows. I learned from a local guy um, in my hometown who ran the nature center, who was interested in uh, primitive technology, everything from stone tools to um, making wooden longbows. Um, I became fascinated with that. And uh, actually so I made, yeah, beautiful bow you got there, Nick. I, I made longbows just for fun for years um, and literally did not think about hunting with them and, until I got to med school and was sort of like, wow, I got to try all these organs. And the easiest way to get them is by killing an animal myself. So so I did pick up bow hunting and since have um, also, um, you know, you hunt with uh, with a rifle or um, a shotgun as well. Um, I don't always get a ton of time to hunt these days, unfortunately, but I also have a lot of hunting friends who do provide me, you know, they know I'm interested in the odd parts that they're likely to throw out or give away. Um, so I generally get a whole bunch of livers and hearts and kidneys. Um, but also have friends who who get you know I have no I know a farmer who gets a lot of antlerless tags and just sort of slaughters them for lack of a better term and gives me a lot of meat and organs every year and so I'm very fortunate that I have access to such wonderful um, meat like that and, and and unusual body parts too. Yeah, 
Awesome. Freezer full, no matter how it is, whether it's someone providing or if it's uh, your own acquisition, it's, it's nice yeah. to have that. And I picked full. up roadkill before too, you know, nothing, nothing wrong with that. If it's a, a fresh kill coming from where I came from though, in, in the suburbs of New Jersey, that, that is an un, 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 unimaginable thing to do to pick <laughs> up roadkill. Um, but uh, I've done it and it's, it's great. And it almost is, you know, it's almost like the in some ways, the most wholesome way you can get meat because the animal is senselessly killed and is just going to rot there. And, and uh, you know, it's a wasted life. So in a way, you know, I started picking up roadkill for um, their skins. I learned to to brain tan around the, the time I learned to make longbows, um, to brain tan deer hides and other um, hides. So I started picking up roadkill for that purpose. And then, you know, when I found a very fresh kill, I was like, why not? Exactly, exactly. Well, hey, that warms my Midwest heart because I feel it's a it's a game my kids and I we play it we're on our way to school and if we see a fresh one the kids are always like dad lunchtime are you going to have to are you going to take a trip to go get it I'm like ah it's worth investigating there's a whole I, I think I step into your world too that as I approach that animal to see if it's worthwhile there's that aspect of I'm a kosher uh priest at that point is this clean is this not Right. happens to and be alongside nose, <laughs> right sometimes your nose is an important uh diagnostic tool in that sense too as it can be in, in practice of medicine as well sometimes awesome oh that just warm warms my heart jonathan i love i love to hear that what was your first experience like taking taking an animal was that something that was really something that kind of like sticks with you or Coming from a land of the medical field and having so many important values there, was this more along the lines of just uh, a neat capstone to the whole experience, or was, or do you remember your first kill? I do. Um, I remember my first kill because I've I was out there many years hunting before I uh, really got much. Uh, you know, I it was actually hard for me to find uh, mentors or people I could learn from. Of course, the you know the internet is a wealth of information on absolutely everything, including hunting. So that was helpful. Um, but I do remember the first the first year I killed, for instance, which was a, a really moving experience. Um, you know, I guess you know some people might think, oh, as a doctor, your job is to sort of prevent death, forestall death, delay death, and here you are bringing about death on purpose. But you know, that's part of the human condition. I mean, we animals eat each other. That's how it goes. Um, and, you know, humans, we're fortunate that we have the sort of uh, the hands and the brain to create things like modern medicine and save our own kind and save a whole lot of animals, too. You know, we, we sort of veterinary medicine, wildlife medicine, et cetera. But that's, you know, could we live on not eating meat? Yes, we could. Would our society be better? I'm not sure. You know, that we can debate that for the next thousand years. Um, but, uh, you know, the fact is that animals eat each other. And, you know, if you're going to do that, I say, know everything about it, do it with eyes wide open, don't just uh, close your eyes to the truth that meat and these other organs that we eat come from killing animals. I mean, that's the truth. And as I learned in medical school, you know, we're made of the same stuff of these animals. And, and really, every part of the body is is edible, every part of an animal's body is edible, except, you know, the teeth, um, and the, uh, you know, maybe the tusks or, you know, things that are going to crack a tooth or stab you in the esophagus when you try to swallow them. But everything else is made of food, basically, and we're made of food, too. That was such a profound moment. I'm going to just say that one again, that if you're going to choose to eat meat, do it with eyes wide open. That was that was good. 
And yeah, I love it. We, we talk about with pork and the fact that you can eat everything but the squeal, but that doesn't have to be just <laughs> just for pork. That can be any organism that's out there. Right. And even the bones, which maybe are hard to chew, you know, you can make a delicious bone broth or, or an aspic out of them. So everything is useful. Your book, The Unseen Body, I want to give you a chance to unpack that a little bit. It, in what I've, what I've gotten so, from it so far, I yet to have got to hit, get a hold of it and, and read it. But what I'm seeing from it is it's, it's talking mainly about the, the amazing parts of the, the human body with some elements of crossover from your adventures in the natural world. You want to unpack that book for us real briefly? Sure. So before um, before I wanted to go to medical school, I ever thought of going to medical school, I got really interested in the natural world um, and and also just traveling to, you know, sort of discover and explore different parts of the earth, different ecosystems, different cultures and how they interact with their ecosystems, how what plants they use, you know, just um, all these aspects of how humans interact with nature really fascinated me. I wanted to be a travel writer, you know, or a nature writer. I really enjoyed um, some, a lot of that type of writing, and that's what I wanted to do. And then through a circuitous path, I ended up deciding to go to medical school. And I sort of brought that same perspective of a travel writer or a nature writer to the human body. Um, you know, I sort of uh, had seen that. I felt like nobody had really done that perspective on the human body. And sort of it was, came natural to me because that was the perspective I brought to medical school. You know, when we learned about the skin, I was thinking about brain tanning. And when we learned about the liver, I was thinking about eating chopped liver. And, you know, when, when we learned about the muscles, I was thinking about the, the cuts of beef. Um, but also, you know, my book kind of combines stories from medical school, from my medical training with food, but also uh, with travel and with exploring the natural world and sort of how the human body is connected um, to all these other things or how, you know, knowledge of the human body applies to all these other sort of unexpected areas, you know, like food, as we talked about, and sort of an, un an unexpected perspective that my anatomy professor brought into the anatomy lab um, helped me sort of, you know, conceptualize some of the things that ended up being in the book. So it's basically that it's a, a traveler or an explorer uh, exploring the human body, all its body parts and bodily fluids from that perspective of sort of discovering a new world. And so each chapter is a different body part or bodily fluid and sort of weaves together together these stories, sort of unexpected, seemingly disparate areas of life that are connected um, by exploring what we're made of. Excellent. Excellent. Where can I find it? Just probably where any um, books are sold. You can, yeah, any bookstore, but also on Amazon, um, you know, other online sellers, Barnes and Noble, Goodreads, etc. Um, so it is pretty widely available. And, you know, you can go to my website, jonathanreisman.com, um, which has has links to it as well, as, and some of the links to the other media appearances and interviews I've done. Excellent, excellent. Well, Jonathan, I have one last question for you. It's, for some odd reason, you've been put on death row. People do not want to listen to Dr. Reisman talk about the unseen body. They don't want to hear about how meat and anatomy correlate and the, the majesty that we get from that, both the nutritious aspect and the function that it has in our body. And we're going to give you your one last meal before you've been put down. What would be your last meal? That's a great question. 
best interview question I've had since <laughs> my book came out. You know, I would have to say a full meal of roasted bone marrow would have to be the way to go. Mm-hmm. I think bone, bone marrow is like almost this perfect food, you know, that the, the bodies of animals offer up to us. You know, it's, I mean, it's basically a bunch of stem cells, um, you know, with a bunch of fat sort of filling it in the spaces in there. And it's all uh, comes in this bone vessel, almost like a cooking vessel. And you don't need to add a single thing to it. You just add heat. And, you know, the fat is there. The stem cells get fried in the fat. The bone adds some flavor. I mean, there's nothing as delicious, I think. Amen. Amen. One of those beef canoes where you just scrape it out, plop it on toast, and it's just a vessel to go right on down delicious and the bone marrow is such a magical part of the body it really is uh really staggering actually that was one of the most surprising things about how many cells bone marrow uh, makes in a day like our, our most disposable white blood cell called the neutrophil which is the main sort of uh, infection fighter you know hundreds of millions maybe billions come out every day into our bloodstream it's it's just unbelievable what the bone marrow does for us and it's freaking delicious Excellent. Well, hey, Jonathan, hold on for just a second. I'm going to send my listeners on out. Folks, I hope that you got just as much excitement as I did on this episode. We're taking an aspect of us sitting in a tree, waiting for our prized animal to come by. When we put it down, man, there's a lot of thoughts that can go through your head. And maybe to dive a little bit deeper, to think about, I'm the first one to be opening up the chest cavity of that deer. I'm the first one that's going to pluck this amazing heart out of this waterfowl. What can I do with it? So whatever you're chasing, whatever you're experiencing as a hunter or as an angler, cherish that gift that you've got. Because not only is it delicious, but it functions as an amazing part of our world and the ecosystems that are around us. And heck, there's even correlations between that animal and us that we can feel what a bond but whatever you're doing whether it's chasing the fish whether it's catching the fish or chasing the deer always do it with your knife sharp and i'm gonna find my pause button here 